You're listening to Put Out The Fire. On today's episode, we will be looking at the progress that has been made since the last major UN climate conference in Paris six years ago and discuss how the Paris Agreement impacts the negotiations currently taking place at COP26. We will also be bringing you an exciting update on the key developments that have taken place so far in Glasgow. We are in a time where it has become clear that civilization is incapable of sustaining current levels of economic growth, agricultural cultivation, material consumption and corporate greed at the expenses of future generations. The world has never been more aware of the impending climate disaster and in agreement that action is required. We, a group of environmental professionals, are convinced of the gravity of this moment and will, with you the listener, explore the context, topics, possible and eventual outcomes of COP26 through a series of podcasts. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to our second instalment in our series where we'll be covering all things COP26. With the conference now underway in Glasgow, we invite you to stay tuned till the end of this episode where we'll be providing you with updates on all of the key developments that have emerged so far. For now though, I'm joined by our team member Luca, who is going to be bringing us deeper insights into the importance of the Paris Agreement in order for us to better understand how we must progress from this in the negotiations at COP26. Hi Luca, how's things? Hi, Leo. Really good, thanks. And yourself? Yeah, I'm doing really well, thank you. Have you been following much of the conference so far? Uh, yeah, but of course the conference just started on Monday, so still a lot has to happen. But so far, it has been interesting to watch the news in the past few days, and I'm really excited to see what will come out of uh, in the in two weeks' time. Two weeks' time, um, especially because uh, the outcomes from the G20, uh, from an environmental point of view, were quite weak. And we really need these two weeks to be as productive as possible. Yeah, it really doesn't seem like much headway was made in Rome prior to the conference, which only really amounts more pressure on definitive action being decided on over the next two weeks. But based on what I've seen so far, it appears that there is some recognition of the gravity of the situation amongst some of the world leaders. Um, So as we've mentioned, a lot of the talks at the conference will revolve around reviewing the Paris agreements and the objectives that were set under this treaty. Um, just to see what sort of progress has been made towards them and reviewing and deciding what now needs to be done to build on the terms that were set out in that treaty. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what the agreement is exactly? Yeah, sure. Um, So the Paris Agreement was drafted in 2015 uh, following the COP21 conference about climate change in Paris, uh, which, as you discussed in the last episode, represented an historic progress in the global action towards climate change. Uh, This is because 191 parties ratified the agreement, which is almost every country on this planet, besides Iran and a handful of other countries. But, you know, it's no big deal as their combined emissions are well below 2% of total global emissions, uh, so very low. Um, Anyways, this agreement was crucial because for the first time, it set a common intergovernmental strategy to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Uh, It was since the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 that we didn't see such a development in tackling this issue. So 
what's the main purpose of the agreement? What is it really intended to achieve? Um, the goal of the Paris Agreement is to address climate change, obviously, uh, but in three critical areas, uh, which are mitigation, adaptation and financial aids. Um, the first is that we must keep average global temperatures below 2 degrees Celsius above uh, pre-industrial levels and aim to limit the increase to 1.5 degrees, as you probably already know. Um, this uh, as is to avoid an irreversible degradation of the environment, as stated by the last IPCC report. Um, the agreement also places a requirement on us uh, to be adaptive to impacts that climate change will have on our planet and our ecosystems. Um, just think about the areas at risk of flooding and desertification due to temperature rise. As you can imagine, millions of people will need moving, and it is imperative to adapt to these future conditions before they actually happen. Um, and finally, there is a call for the goals to be delivered through uh, directing consistent financial flows towards adaptation and climate resilience, which, by the way, often goes from developed countries to the de developing ones. So, yeah, there is there is a lot of, to unpack there. And uh, if, if it will be actually interesting to see how different countries consider the progress that has been made towards the goals at COP26. Yeah, I can't imagine that all the countries will be in agreement over the progress that's been made so far. Um, we have some countries that have certainly demonstrated capability in moving on, moving towards the goals. Um, but then there's other countries who stand to face a lot of criticism for, for lack of movement on this. And it's concerning, for instance, that you know, you've know you got countries like the USA and China who account for a significant amount of the uh, global, a significant amount of global emissions. I think the combined emissions between the USA and China is around 38% of global emissions. Um, and China was sort of late in signing the agreement um, themselves. And then in the US, former President Donald Trump threw out the agreement only months after it became effective. Um, and that means that for the last four years or so, the, the agreement hasn't been integrated into global, po uh, global policy responses of one of the world's or some of the world's largest greenhouse gas emitters. Well, you're actually right. And it has not been very encouraging uh, from, some, uh, from some of the world's largest players. But it seems that uh, we're almost back on track now. Um, we just have to hope that will this will happen in, uh, in time. <clears throat> the last report published by the UN on developments of the Paris Agreements actually shows that many countries are improving a lot in the definition of their nationally determined contributions. Uh, the targets, for instance, are clear and uh, quantifiable. There is a major development in the adaptation programs and the um, commitments to reducing emissions are more challenging than in 2015. Uh, but nevertheless, as you said, not all countries are in agreement of, uh, on the progress to be made. Uh, just think, for instance, uh, whilst scientists call for a net zero commitment by 2050, uh, countries like China and Russia opted for, for postponing the date to, I think, 2060. Um, and similarly, Turkey, which, by the way, has just ratified the agreement, uh, it was one of the last ones to ratify, actually. It has been attempting to implement the accord as a developing country, uh, which means that it will face less pressure on meeting a net zero goal. Then, naturally, every country wants to be part of the agreement, and for good reasons. Just think of 
the reputational gains and the possibility to access to financial support like with the, the, the Green Climate Fund. But when it's time to commit to the pledges made, then we can really see what the intentions of a country are. So you've mentioned a lot about, you know, you said about the Green Climate Fund just there, and you've mentioned financial incentives quite a bit already. But do you not think it's somewhat concerning that we're having to implement these these financial incentives in order to encourage a united agreement on climate action? Uh, I think so, yes, in a way, but it actually really depends on your perspective, you know. Um, for a start, some, some governments simply don't recognize the extent of the, the situation um, or if they do, they believe it's not their concern. And so uh, we were always going to have to incentivize some, somehow uh, and the, this country. And despite what moral debate we could get into about it, incentives drive action at the end of the day, you know. Uh, but mm, you also got to look at it that, and, and say it's less about incentives and more about creating a motivated response toward necessary action. Uh, it's important to remember that climate change is already costing tens of billions of dollars at a global level every single year. And these costs will only increase in the future. Um, so in, in practice, every penny we spend today uh, to fight climate change will yield much more in the future in terms of saved costs. I mean, that's a, that's a much less gloomy perspective, I've got to say. Um, so we... We've already discussed that the core part of the agreement is the nationally determined contributions. We spoke about this quite a lot in the in the last episode. Um, I want to explore that in a bit more detail now because, we, as we've stated, this is going to form the, the core part of the talks in Glasgow over the next couple of days. So how it works, each country determines their own contributions based on what they feel they need to, to contribute in order to uh, limit uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, uh, these were pledged during the talks at Paris, and once the treaty is ratified by a country, they form the central objective of each country's emission reduction plan. And the reason why this is such an important focus of COP26 is because these plans need to be reviewed every five years, and these new plans will hopefully be determined by the time the conference ends on November the 12th. Am I correct in everything I've said there? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 right. Uh, but then obviously there is quite a, a bit of flexibility in terms of uh, largely the, these plans are focused on climate change mitigation measures, but uh, they can really pledge anything they deem to be actionable from uh, financial pledges to adaptation to sustainable technologies, infrastructures, and so on. Um, well, a key turning point in this regard is that from 2024, countries will actually have to start reporting and disclose their actions toward climate change uh, so that every other party can, can see what pledges have been made and, and, and what progress uh, there has been in achieving them. Uh, well, this is, uh, will surely start a process of peer pressure where less ambitious countries will be encouraged to improve, or at least we hope so. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens when every country will have to disclose its progress towards the targets. Uh, but to this date, five years have passed already since the Paris Agreement, and many countries have, have already submitted their second plan of nationally determined contributions. What has the progress been since 2016? Are we, are we on track to meet that below two degrees target? 
Um, so this is a very interesting point uh, because at the end of the day, the ambition, co ambitious commitments of a few countries will be vain if all the others are not on track. Uh, unfortunately, the situation is not promising. And now I will cite some of the data from the most recent UN report that reviewed all the new and uh, updated NDCs. So in order to meet the IPCC recommendations of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees, uh, the global greenhouse gas emissions in 2030 will have to drop by about 45% compared to the 2010 emissions, or 25% if we consider the below 2 degrees scenario. Before the latest NDCs submitted uh, were to be implemented, the emissions in 2030 will be 16.3% above the 2010 levels, which is very far, very far from reaching both the 1.5 uh, degrees and 2 degrees scenarios. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really far off, isn't it? 45%, that, that's, that's incredible for a start. But to, to, think, we're, to think we're that far, far off with the, with the current emissions that are being pledged as well, it's, it doesn't sound good at all, does it? It's, it's incredible, I mean, to look at this data and uh, to give an idea of how far we are from reaching the target. Uh, in, 2008, in, the, in the 2018 report on climate change by the IPCC, um, it was estimated that uh, it was estimated a CO2 carbon budget to avoid breaking the 1.5 degrees threshold. Um, if the current NDCs were to be respected, we would use around 89% of this budget by 2030, which leaves us with just 55 gigatons CO2 after 2030. And you might think, okay, 55 gigatons of CO2, it, it's a lot, a lot of CO2. But if you think about it, that's equal to the current average CO2 annual emissions. Hence, uh, under the current piece, um, the only way to reach the 1.5 degrees target would be to reach a global net zero emissions by 2032, which is not very far. <laughs> so um, we are in urgent need for a significant increase in the levels of ambitions of these NDCs between now and 2030. Um, they must be more challenging uh, to meet the targets agreed upon the Paris Agreement. And I'm really looking forward to hear some discussion about this in the next few days. Luca, from a lot of stuff I've read and the talks I've been to on how we formulate action towards climate change, uh, whilst it is recognised how important mitigation measures will be, uh, there is also a lot of emphasis on the importance of adaption. I think this is a subject that becomes much more prominent in the conversation of sustainability and climate change now. So, so this is about how, you know, instead of how looking at it and saying, oh, look, this happened here, what do we do now to fix it? how do we mobilize money and resources towards recovery? And it's, it's more about saying, okay, so we recognize that there is a risk here. There could be catastrophic outcomes if we ignore it. And how do we implement our resources to preemptively prepare ourselves for this rather than addressing it retrospectively when the damage has already been done? Um, yes, you're right. Uh, fortunately, we're beginning to see this line of thinking becoming more widely acknowledged. And uh, this is in that part 
in large part uh, could be subjected to the fact that climate-related disasters are more common and more impactful than they were only a few generations ago. Um, people are scared now because we didn't realize what was going on in time, and now many have witnessed in first person the consequences. So um, now we see this line of thinking better integrated into planning. Uh, planning now accounts for long-term temperature increases and sea level rises and looks at what preventive measures could be put in place to at least restrict impacts or uh, building contingency measures to say uh, not if but when these natural disasters happen, what do we do? Uh, but this also pertains to adaptation in resource consumptions and this is a very relevant topic since we live in a finite planet uh, where population growth is nowhere close to peaking. And this is uh, to say how do we adapt to secure food supplies, uh, water supplies, or uh, maintain maintenance of biodiversity and our critical ecosystems, our health, basically. Um, there's a lot that needs attention here, and I would encourage our listeners to go and read up on this information, because I'll tell you something that is very evident. We all have a role to play. At the end of the day, uh, this crisis affects us all. As we're recording this on Tuesday evening, COP26 is already underway, and we thought it would be a good idea to discuss what's been going on so far at the conference. I'm now joined by Natty, who's going to be telling us her thoughts on what we've been watching so far. Hi, Natty, how are you doing? Hi, Elliot. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. It's uh, great to be here. So, Natty, if you had to capture the sort of feeling or the general theme of what's been going on so far, how would you put that into words? Gosh, well, look, I mean, most of the uh, world leaders, they've managed to get to Glasgow now. Um, it was a bit of a rainy and busy day with lots of traffic in the city. Um which I think somewhat reflected the end of the world um, rhetoric that seems to be a prominent theme um, in most of the speeches so far. I mean, following a vague G20 summit in Rome um, that preceded COP26, sadly, the expectations have remained pretty low. Um, there's also been a lot of focus on the world leaders that are absent. So Xi Jinping from China and Russia's Vladimir Putin are amongst the most prominent absentees, throwing into question you know, their commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we've also got leaders from South Africa, Brazil and Mexico who are also absent. But you know what, Elliot, despite all of these like concerning factors, um, there's actually been many compelling speeches from the likes of David Attenborough. Um, and it's also, of course, great to see the climate activists um, putting pressure on the world leaders. Yeah, I think it's been really sort of interesting to to see that they, these climate activists and people like David Attenborough are, are there and they've got, they've, they're speaking to these world leaders and um, they, they're sort of in a position where they, they kind of have to listen to them now and that they're forced to listen to, to, to the concerns from this, from this huge, well, it's now a huge community of people who are really, really, really uh, concerned about this situation. Um, so following... But focusing on the on the leaders specifically and the speeches that they've given so far, what do you think are the sort of major takeaways that we can that we've seen already? 
Well, I mean, amongst, you know, other speeches, we've had Boris Johnson's keynote speech um, that managed to draw an analogy between a ticking time bomb that James Bond must defuse and the situation humanity finds itself in with the climate crisis, which maybe isn't a surprise coming from RPM. Um, Johnson also outlined the effects of warming at different temperature changes and referred to the doomsday clock that we are now at one minute to midnight. So I guess he's finally, or at least outwardly, admitted that we have had, or we have a very severe crisis to deal with, um, and the speech held the right tone. Um, but I just wonder, you know, if it carries any weight. We'll see. Um, you know, we've got Barbados's Prime Minister, Mia Motley. She delivered a start warning on the effects of the rising global temperatures on countries like her own. Um, we've had Prince Charles also talk, talking of stark realities. Interestingly as well, we've also had um, India's Prime Minister, um, Narendra Modi, who made the first their first climate pledge, which is massive, um, and that is that India will reach net zero by 2070. So it's been a real mixed bag um, from the first couple of days. Yeah, I think it's been great to see that we're, we're seeing these developing countries and smaller nations, nations such as, you know, you said Barbados and the more indigenous communities having much more of a voice on the world stage because... As we've said you know, before, that these are the communities that stand to be the most victimised, already the most victimised uh, by the situation. So that's been quite, quite cool to follow as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think it's really important hearing from more Indigenous communities. You know, 80% of our global biodiversity is nurtured by Indigenous communities. So we have to give them, you know, a seat at the table and we have to hear what they have to say because they are absolutely vital in combating um, the climate crisis. Yeah, and you mentioned Miranda Modi's speech as well. And, you know, some people have been quick to, to call out India for the for the pledges that they've made. And they've said that 2070 is just, is just too late um, compared mm. to where we should, the targets that we should be meeting based on the, the, the sort of global goal of meeting it by 2050. But, you know, they're a developing nation at the end of the day. And they, they, whilst they do represent one of the largest economies in the world, I, I think, uh, you know, with, with sort of, global cooperation and some support then there's not that's not to say that we can't bring that that year a bit closer that that, that target down a bit um so who knows i think it's really good that we're seeing that india's finally making some serious pledges to towards their goals and um I, I, it's been really good to see that, that that's that's developed um so in terms of so we, we've, we've seen a lot of speeches and we've heard a lot of world, world leaders and a few of us especially us we've been following this a lot from home um but what's been going on at the negotiating table? What, what sort of progress are we starting to see there? Yeah, well, I mean, look, we're only on day two. We've had a lot of un introductory speeches. Um, but I think, quite excitingly, the first major commitment that's come out of the conference um, so far is the fact that more than 100 leaders representing more than 85% of the world's forests have agreed to halt deforestation by 2030. So this is an agreement that was officially announced today, um, and among the nations participating in the pledge are Canada, Russia, Colombia, Indonesia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And these are all countries, you know, um, that have the world's most important carbon sinks. And also, of course, we cannot forget Brazil in that. You know, Brazil have signed up. So this is huge. Um, and I'm excited to see what else um, and what other commitments might come out of the next few days. Yeah, I think it's fantastic that we're starting to see this this big coalition of, of these countries that, you know, have 
most impacted or, or are the most constitutive in in this mass deforestation which is a huge issue and um and it's like you say brazil as well who historically sort of ignored that issue and have allowed the situation to exploit and it's, it's great to see that we're finally finally seeing some some formative action on that so, yeah. absolutely yeah um and i believe you're planning to attend cop 26 next week is there anything you're particularly looking forward to seeing yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited. I'm heading up on Monday. Um, and to be honest, I'm looking forward to just soaking up the atmosphere. I'll definitely be spending some time with um, some of the activists. Um, I've got tickets to the Green Zone, go and have some interesting conversations with different businesses, see what see what they're, you know, doing as their own targets, or if there's any greenwashing going on, it'll be interesting. And of course, going in and listening to some hopefully exciting and interesting talks. Um, and then... Yeah coming back and letting you guys all know what's been going on yeah brilliant well we're looking forward to having you back and telling you telling us all about uh what you've seen up there um but thanks for updating us on what's been going on so far so really insightful and um uh, we hope that everybody listening will be tuning in soon to to hear some more updates on on what's just been going on at, at this historic conference Thank you for listening to Put Out The Fire. We hope you're enjoying the series so far. We hope you stay tuned for more COP26 updates and conversations that we will be bringing you very soon.